All right, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn to the book of Luke. All right, Luke is one of the synoptic gospels. And uh, sin means together, S-Y-N means together, and optic means see. So the synoptic gospels tell us the same basic story, uh, pretty much in the same order. They're, they're very much in agreement, and they talk about the life of the Lord Jesus. Now, John's gospel is the one that is not called synoptic because John was very familiar with the other gospels and he wanted to add something with a different, a little different perspective. Now, of course, John did not write to correct the record because there was no need for any correction. Um, but he wrote in order to add a different and distinct flavor to the other gospels. Now, who was Luke? We see from Luke's writing that he was a thoughtful and meticulous historian. We learn from Colossians 4 that he was a Gentile, a physician, and a companion of Paul. You may have heard these things. I mean, I grew up knowing that, that Luke was a Gentile, but I hadn't seen in Scripture where that came from. So look with me in Colossians 4, 10 through 14, and we'll learn these things about Paul. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and this is Paul writing to the Colossians, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So Paul says, hey, these guys that I just introduced are men of the circumcision. In other words, these are Jews that are hanging out with me, helping me do what I'm doing. Then he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, meaning a Colossian, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the word of God, all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and those in Laodicea and Herapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. So he introduces his Jewish cohorts, and then he introduces his Gentile cohorts, and we see that Luke is among them, and he is called the beloved physician. Now, why did, why did Luke write his gospel? Well, he tells us in the first four verses, so let's look at those. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So the reason that Luke wrote was to give us a reliable and historical another perspective, another perspective of the life of Christ. Now, verse 2 says that he was talking to eyewitnesses. He was getting eyewitness accounts. So he was a meticulous historian. He was making sure that he went to the source and understood these things properly and wrote them down correctly. Verse 3 says that he writes an orderly account. If I had to pick one of the synoptic gospels as my favorite, I believe I would pick Luke. Um, the reason, I think, is that he is a Gentile. Now, I'm not saying that Gentiles are preferable by any means, but I, being a Gentile, kind of think along the same wavelength as Luke. If you recall a long time ago when we started First John, John would mention a topic, and then a couple of 
he'd circle around to some more topics and then eventually he'd get back to what he was saying in chapter 1 and then he'd go around a while more and then he'd hit that topic again in chapter 5 let's say and so after a while that kind of circular going around and around to get different bites of different subjects is not really how we think we think in a more linear chronological way and that seems to be the way that mark is laid out a little more so than the others look at with with me at just a few examples of how Luke places this account in its historical place and time. You can tell that this is not uh, fable. It is grounded in particular events and surrounding particular people in a historical context. Luke one five says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So he says, look, here's when it happened, and here are the people that I'm talking about. And this high priest, or this priest, was serving during the reign of this guy. Uh, Verse 1 and 2 says, of chapter 2, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. So he's saying, this thing happened while Caesar Augustus was reigning, that the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So he is giving very specific settings of the events that he's going to tell us about. Then in the beginning of chapter 3, he says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of this other region. So you see he's saying, look, these are historical people. This is a certain time that these events happened. Here was who was in power. So it's wonderful that he gave us all that historical record because the more and more that is uncovered by archaeologists, the more that we can see the reliability of this great historian, Luke. Then verse 2 says, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So he tells us who was in power, when they were in power, so that all these things can be verified. Now why is he so concerned about accuracy and historicity? Well, it tells us in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Theophilus could go check this stuff out. He could verify the truth of the account that Luke is giving him. Now, some have postulated that Theophilus was not really an individual, but that that name is representative of the church. And the reason they say this is Theos means God, and phileo is one of the biblical words for love. And so the name Theophilus means one who loves God or lover of God. I don't think this is correct, though. I think it was an individual. He seems to be addressing a person, and especially when he says, most excellent Theophilus. The most excellent address was commonly used for nobility in the ancient world. And a lot of times when somebody had a patron who was supporting them while they did a a work like this, a work of history, they would provide a living for them and they would dedicate, the person would dedicate the writing to the patron. In the early church, uh, they were quick to recognize the authenticity and the accuracy and the inspiration of this letter. And so it was almost immediately put into the canon unquestionably by early Christians. Now, characteristics of this gospel include the fact that, like we said, Luke was a Gentile and he was writing primarily to Gentiles. For instance, Matthew traces the the, uh, genealogy and the lineage of Jesus and he traces it back to Abraham. 
because that's what's important, right? Abraham was the father of the faith. He was the, he was the progenitor of the Jews. So that was Matthew's concern. Luke takes a little more universal approach and traces his lineage all the way back to Adam. And so you can see little differences like that. You know, the, the fact that Luke emphasizes that Christ is Savior is not different, but he emphasizes that he is the Savior of all people, not just the Jews. So there's no disagreement among the gospel. There's just different emphases. And if there weren't different emphases, then we wouldn't need four gospels, right? We read in the first four verses uh, why he wrote it. So now let's look at verses 5 through 38, if you'd like to read along with me. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold... You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that all these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end." 
And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her whom was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I want us to take a few moments and see the difference in the response that Zechariah had from Mary's response. We can respond to God, to God either with doubt, like Zechariah did, or with faith and submission, like Mary did. We can respond with skepticism and doubt when we receive the word of God. Zechariah was one of the many priests who were chosen by Lot to serve in the temple. So when his turn came to go serve in the actual temple in Jerusalem, this was a great honor. It, it might have even been a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him. So this was already awesome, all right? He's in the temple. He's doing his priestly duty there. And then the angel Gabriel appears to him. Now, I hope that we've learned by now that angels are scary, right? <laughs> They're not little fat babies with bows and arrows. They are very impressive and frightening. Everyone's reaction to the sight of an angel is fear. Now, obviously, they're not scary because they're ugly. On the contrary, I'm sure that they are stunningly perfect in their appearance. But they are alien and very intimidating. And Gabriel is used to this reaction and tells him not to be afraid. He has great news for Zechariah. Zechariah and Elizabeth were going to get the answer to their prayer of years and years and years. They had been praying for a baby, and finally they're going to get the answer. Now, God took his time answering this prayer. And I wonder, had they given up? I'm pretty sure they had, judging by Zechariah's response. If you're praying for something that is in keeping with God's will and has godly ambitions and goals, keep praying. Jesus clearly and amazingly teaches us that we are to persist in prayer. So if the Lord has given you a desire that is godly and that is motivated by the right ambitions, keep on praying until you die because you don't know when or how the Lord will answer that prayer. Now, I don't pretend to fully understand why God doesn't just give us what he wants to give us when we ask, but I think it has something to do with our continuing dependence on God. Uh, if there is something that you are desperate for, you will continue praying, you will continue seeking the Lord, you will keep depending on him to give you that answer to that thing that is so important. You know, I've told you before, but I love it, J.D. Greer says that the secret to a great prayer life is desperation. Are you desperate to see this church grow? Are you desperate to see us plant a church in Ellisville and see it produce fruit? If you are desperate for these things, you will be praying for these things. So pray and do not cease. And I think it also has to do, our, our persistence has to do with the joy that we have when we receive the answer to that prayer. You know, if we got everything we asked for, we would be horribly spoiled. If you don't believe that, hang around with a two-year-old that gets everything they want when they want it, and you'll see the truth. So let me encourage you to persist in prayer. 
Now back to Zechariah. He's in the temple in Jerusalem, and a really impressive, awe-inspiring angel appears to him and tells him that you're going to get the answer to your prayers. You and your wife are going to have a child, but not only are you going to have a child, you're going to have a very special child because this son of yours is going to be great before the Lord. That's what the angel tells him. He says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. It says that this son will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. He will go before the Messiah to make people ready for the Lord. He will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. That's an amazing promise. Not only have you been praying for decades to have a child and now we're gonna, you're going to get the answer to that, but also, this child is not going to be any ordinary child. He is going to be a prophet, and he is going to be an amazingly successful and blessed and highly used prophet. Now, how does Zechariah respond? Zechariah says to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now, I wish I could have seen the look on Gabriel's face at this point. <laughs> Because he seems to be rather amazed at this response. Listen to his reaction. And the angel answered him and said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, Gabriel does not, well, this Gabriel, the, uh, the angel, does not have any pride that is sinful for sure. But he seems kind of amazed. He's like, dude, you were scared to death a moment ago, and now you're going to ask me if I'm telling you the truth? I'm Gabriel. I stand before God, and I was sent here to give you this message. Now, Zechariah should have known, and I'm sure did know, who Gabriel was. How did he know? He knew from the book of Daniel, right? So he knows who he's talking to, and he's still got the nerve to say, well, how do I know this is actually going to happen? I bet Zechariah was a little slower to speak after he finally got the ability to speak back. Now, sometimes we need to think before we argue with the word of God. Uh, sometimes meaning all the time. We don't need to object when God tells us something. Now, I don't mean to be too hard on Zechariah. He was a faithful believer who had a bad moment. <clears throat> but let's contrast that bad moment with what Mary's reaction was. The other alternative is we can respond in submission and faith to the word of God. So the same angel Gabriel comes to Mary and he says, don't be afraid because that's what angels have to do when they come talk to you. Then he proceeds to tell her this amazing news that she will be the mother of the Messiah. Listen to how mind-blowing this proclamation was. Now, the, the one to Zechariah was amazing. This is even more amazing. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. That's amazing. He's, he's going to be the Son of God, somehow. Mary probably doesn't understand this exactly. And he's going to be given the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. This is radically new territory for anybody. She can't conceive of exactly how this is going to be fulfilled. He's going to be the Son of the Most High. 
he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever? How is that going to take place? But you know how she responds? She responds with submission and with faith to what God's word says to her. Now she has a question, but it's a very different question. Zechariah said, how shall I know this? In other words, how am I supposed to believe this? I'm old and my wife's old. How's this? I, I don't know about this. Are you going to give me a sign or something? He says, how will I know this? Mary's question is not, can I believe this? Mary's question is not, is this going to happen? Mary's question, on the other hand, is how is this going to happen? Now, she doesn't have any, any experience in this area, but she knows how this works, right? <laughs> so she says, uh, I'm a virgin, so I'm not sure how this is going to happen. Will you tell me how this is going to happen? And Gabriel tells her. Luke 1.38, and Mary said, now this, guys, is the crux of the sermon. This is how we are supposed to respond to the word of God. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So where the rubber hits the road here is how will you respond to God's word? Now many times I preach to you, if I'm doing my job, we'll come to a point of decision. The same thing will happen when you read the word of God. What do you do with what has been presented to you? That is the question. When I share with you the Great Commission, how do you respond? Do you say, well, I know, but. Now, the but is where the problem comes in. When God says, do this thing, and you start rationalizing, and you start saying, is this really for me? That is when we run into huge problems. For instance, if I share with you the Great Commission, and I say, guys, this is our responsibility, then you might say, well, but hang on. He was talking to the, the disciples. He wasn't talking to me. Well, part of the Great Commission is teach everybody else what I've told you, <laughs> right? So one way or the other, this is our responsibility. And I tell you about the Great Commission, and the wheels start turning, and you say, well... I'm just not really the outgoing type. Or you might say, that's just out of my comfort zone. Or you may say, I'm afraid I'll say the wrong thing. Now I can sympathize with those because I'm not terribly outgoing enough to just run up to strangers and start conversations. When I was learning to witness, it made me very nervous to knock on people's doors. It's, I understand. But... It comes back to the question of how do you receive the word of God? Do you say, God, I'm not a natural born salesman, therefore this portion of scripture doesn't apply to me? Or do you say, well, you know what? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Those are two different responses that we can give to the word of God. Now, if you say, hey, I'm afraid I won't say the right thing, again, I sympathize there because that's how I felt. But you know what I did? I went and learned the right thing to say. So that can't be your permanent excuse. You can't say, I don't, I don't know how. I might say something wrong. Fine, go learn how to say things right. And then you can go and you can obey the Great Commission. Or let's talk about another sensitive subject. 
if I talk to you about giving money to support the work of the church. Now guys, we are trying to build and finish building and operate another campus. Do you know what that's going to require? That's going to require money. (laughs) Do you know where money comes from? Money comes from you giving money to the Lord. That is prescribed in Scripture. It is taught in Scripture. But some of you read that and you go, well, I would, except I just don't have that extra money lying around. Or you might say, you know, that's all you church people talk about is money, which is certainly not true. You might say, if God would provide more for me than I could give, you know what you'd do? You'd spend more. I mean, that's the truth. If you don't give, it's because you spend what you got. And if you got more, you'd spend that too. You may say, other people don't do their part, so why should I? Well, we can't have that response to the word of God. Instead, we have got to say, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What if we talk about faithfully attending, even when it's slightly inconvenient, so as to obey the command not, for, not to forsake the assembly? Uh, you know, I've heard people say, look, it's my only day off. So what? <laughs> he says don't forsake the assembly. He doesn't say don't forsake the assembly unless it happens to be your only day off. What if you don't feel absolutely perfect? Well, I'm 48, and I don't ever feel absolutely perfect. And <laughs> Most of you are older than I am. So feeling absolutely perfect is, is not a good reason to forsake the assembly. It's the only day we could go to the lake. It's the only day we could go visit relatives. I understand stuff comes up occasionally. I plan to take a vacation uh, and be gone a Sunday sometime in the future. I understand that. That's okay. That's fine. But the regular habit of our lives needs to be faithful attendance to the assembly, right? But guys, we can come up with a lot of excuses why we don't say, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Instead, we say, well, that doesn't apply to me because so-and-so. Let's talk about worship with wholehearted enthusiasm. Now, I'm guilty of part of this, so I can, uh, I can give a testimony. You might say, I would worship more wholeheartedly if the music selection were better, if we did all contemporary stuff, or if we did all old stuff, or if we did you know, the eight hymns that we sang in my church growing up. I've heard all of that because I used to do that, right? So we can say, that's my excuse for not worshiping wholeheartedly. You can also say, I'm just not very expressive. Now, I went with that for a long time. I said, I am worshiping wholeheartedly. And it's true that I was. I was sitting there like a rock, worshiping wholeheartedly. (laughs) But nobody around me could tell. But you know what? The Bible says to lift holy hands unto the Lord. We need to do a sermon series soon on the postures of worship. Because throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, Worship is a physical experience. It'll talk about how people were bowing down, how people would lift hands, just all these kind of physical activities that have to do with worship. And you can say, well, I'm just not made that way. But really, the truth is, it's not about how you're made. It's about what God is worthy of, right? And so when we worship wholeheartedly, we're not doing it because we particularly feel it at that moment. We're doing it because we're worshiping a God who is worthy of extreme worship. My son Gabriel, 
asked the other day which dog I would save if the house were burning and I had to pick a dog. <laughs> uh, and I thought, well, I thought about their ages. I thought about which ones I liked. I thought about their relative ages. And I thought about, um, you know, their, their health how much potential future quality of life they had. And I picked one of our dogs, and I said, I'd, I'd say that one. <clears throat> now, if somebody gave me, uh, I don't want this opportunity, but if someone forced upon me the opportunity to save my wife or my children or myself, I wouldn't have to go through that thought process. I wouldn't have to say, well, should I save myself or my wife or one of my kids by jumping in the way of this gunman. I wouldn't have to think, well, I am older than my kids, so maybe my kids should win out. But I'm a little bit younger than my wife, so man, I'll just let her get shot. No, I don't have to go through that process because I love them so much that without thinking for an instant, I would jump in the way. That is the heart we need to have when God tells us something. Now, if he tells us through the sermon or through the word of God when we're reading it, and we see a command there, instead of analyzing it and saying, what's this going to cost me? How is this going to change my, uh, my habits? How is this going to negatively affect me? Is it worth it? Instead of going through this analysis, we need to love God so much that we go, yes, sir. Whatever it is, we go, yes, Before we know what it is, we say yes. If we'll respond like that, the Lord will use us in big, big ways. I want us all to get to the point where we love God so much that he has our yes about everything. We can tell him, Lord, I don't know what you want me to do tomorrow, but yes. We may say, Lord, I haven't haven't evaluated what you want me to give to the church Um, Do you want me to go above and beyond to support this new work that we're doing? Yes. Now, does he want you to? I don't know. But you say yes before you ask him, and then you get a response from him. Do you want me to get better at how I share the gospel? Yes is the answer, whatever God tells you. Do you want me to not forsake the assembly? Yes. I won't do it. If you say your yes before you ask God the question, he'll use you in a more effective and a bigger way. We talk about how God doesn't give his authority and power to rebels. He is pleased to give his authority and power to those who say yes before he even asks the question. You know, I tell you that salvation is like unconditional surrender, right? Unconditional surrender is when your army has gotten whooped really bad, And you go to the other general and you say, we give up. We give up with no condition, just stop shooting us. And they say, okay. And they can take over your land. They can can take over your army. They can take over your stuff. Because you don't have any conditions. You don't have any say. Now, conditional surrender, on the other hand, is what many of us act like we've done. We come to God and we say, look, Lord, I want you to save me. And you can be my co-pilot. He's not interested in being your co-pilot. He's interested in being your master. We're the slave. He's the master. We don't come up with conditions. We just say yes. Is God, do you treat God like God or like your advisor? 
Does he give you information? Does he provide perspective for you? And then you decide what's really right? Or does he say, here's what I want, and you say, absolutely, yes, sir, right now, here I go. Now, obviously, I have not always done this perfectly. Um, but it is the goal of my life to hear what the Lord wants and to do it with all my energy and effort. I've heard before a very wise saying that says, delayed obedience is disobedience. So when we hear from God, whether it's through a sermon, whether it's through our own Bible reading, whether it's through a brother or sister in Christ as we fellowship with them, we don't have to analyze, we don't have to spend a lot of time deciding if we do what the Lord tells us, because we just love him so much that we have said yes beforehand. Dr. Rogers told the story one time, he said, when I'm out of town, I don't go in my hotel room and decide whether I'm going to watch pay-per-view pornography. You know why I don't decide that? Because I already decided a long time ago, and I don't have to make that decision every time I travel. So guys, what I want us to do is make the decision that when we hear from God, we've already said yes. Now guys, that's not a way for the pastor to manipulate people. If I tell you what God says and you go, yeah, he did interpret that correctly and he did apply that correctly, so that is indeed what God says, then do it. If I say, guys, here's what I would like you to do, well, you got all kind of discretion not to listen to that. <laughs> but if it's God's word we got one answer and one answer only, and that is yes, sir. So I want you to think about that today. Uh, it's hard to take in and respond to that if that's, a, if that's a different kind of life for you. But consider what, it's, it's easier, it's simpler. You decide ahead of time that the Lord has all my life, he has all my money, he has all my time, and I will do anything and everything the Lord says to me. If we'll become that kind of people and become a prayerful bunch of people, the Lord will use us in ways that are bigger than we can think or imagine. Let's respond to God like Mary next time his word confronts us and we have to make a decision. Now, the reason I said that he's the master and we're the slaves is we've been bought with a price. We sinned and rebelled against God. And when we did, we deserved one judgment. And that is hell. God provided a way for us to become holy. We sang a little while ago, Jesus Christ, my righteousness. Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life that you couldn't live, died a death that you deserved but he didn't, in order to make an exchange possible. You can come to him and by faith, you can give you can apply all of your sin and rebellion onto Christ's account, which he paid for at the cross. And he will in turn, by faith, he will place his righteousness on your account. And then we are saved. We have been bought with a price. And from that point on, we need to act like we've been bought with a price. We need to serve the Lord with unimaginable gratitude. You know, Jesus told a parable about how a guy paid off a little loan. He excused a little loan, and then he excused a really big loan. And he said, who's going to love this guy more? And the answer, the proper answer was, well, the guy that was forgiven more. Folks, when we realize how bad our sin is, then we realize how much we've been forgiven. 
And then we're ready to put that yes on the table for God to ask whatever he wants. So your decision today is whether or not you're going to do that. So think about that. And I, I pray that you will say yes, that your attitude from now on will be, I am your servant. Do what you want to do.